Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Masha Rumor. She's an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Moscow Times, and Parents.com, to name a few. An immigrant from the former Soviet Union, Masha now lives with her husband and two children in California. And her first book is Parenting with an Accent, How Immigrants Honor Their Heritage, Navigate Setbacks, and Chart New Paths for Their Children. Welcome, Masha. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I love your podcast. It's great to be here as a guest. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Masha. So start by telling us a little bit of your own story of immigrating to the United States as a teenager. Sure. Well, I came to the United States as a refugee with my family when I was uh, 13 and a half years old. So and I was, of course, lucky to be here, but it wasn't a very smooth process for me to adapt. It took a bit of time. And eventually, you know, I adapted and had a child and then another one. And suddenly when I had my baby, the first one, all that culture shock sort of came back flooding all over again, which got me thinking about, you know, identity. I'm sure all of us think about identity when we become parents, but there were all these multi-layers about what is home. Does my home even exist anymore? And it didn't because the Soviet Union thankfully, <laughs> crumbled that I grew up in. And even my city, which is uh, Leningrad, was renamed to St. Petersburg. So it has nothing to do with politics, but I found myself really craving and missing kind of this childhood that I had with its songs and food and this kind of ethos of this a whole different world that didn't really exist around me. And I really wanted to impart that to my kids through all those things, you know, through music, food, but of course, also a certain level of understanding. And of course, language, especially because my husband is American and he doesn't speak my language. And that's kind of what got me thinking and talking to a bunch of other parents, no matter where they're from. And we all sort of struggled with that same question. How do I share my culture and the stories of my ancestors and my a huge part of my identity while I live away from it? How can I be American enough, quote unquote, but also preserve some aspects of my background? There was a saying in your book that I loved, a Russian saying, you can't sit on two chairs with one butt, I'm going to say. Yep. <laughs> so, so tell us about that, because Margaret and I are both non-immigrant parents. So tell us a little bit about that experience, what it's like to be in America, not of America, but your kids are of America if they were born here. You know, what is that like on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, it's always kind of a balancing act. It's not something that I think about regularly, but in a way, 
I think myself and other immigrants, whether they came here as little kids or adults, kind of always reevaluate. How do we, okay, so say you have like a certain, like a few, three minutes. Do you spend that time letting them watch, say, Sesame Street or go join a soccer league? Or do you drag them to, say, traditional Indian dance classes? Or as some people I know from my heritage, say, uh, math classes every day of the week or gymnastics, take them to a play group with, you know, all American kids will obviously speak English. If they're somewhat Russian speaking, they might be a little bit more likely to speak Russian, although not always. And there's only so much time during the day. And specifically when it comes to language, in order to learn it, you have to actually be exposed to it and, and not just hear it, but also use it. And obviously, the more you use it, the better you get. And so that's always a trade-off we're making. It's a little bit easier in my family because we only have two languages. But there are lots of parents who say one, for example, speaks Dutch and the other one speaks, I don't know, Hindi or Spanish. And so they need to make enough time for all of those languages too. And I guess the biggest takeaway for me is that it's never going to be perfect. I should stop feeling so guilty. <laughs> ha ha, so easy to say. Right? <laughs> Let's just not feel guilty anymore. <laughs> sure. We'll all crack the code on that one someday. <laughs> yeah. And I think just being more gentle with myself is something that I've learned to do. I think as not just as I you know, started being an older parent or being in this longer, but also just as I started talking to other people and doing research. I think being gentle with myself as I parent and as I kind of try to tune out some of those pressures that I feel from my ancestors or my relatives. Somebody's cousin is so much better at like reciting this traditional poem or really are you letting her eat like frozen pizza? That's interesting. Well, we talk about that all the time on the podcast. It's just another thing to have to do. The weight of that feeling, whether it's our, my kids should be participating in more extracurricular things or my kids should be spending more time with their cousins or whatever the things that our to-do list already feels packed. I guess I have to keep them in touch with their heritage too. Like that seems like another other thing to have to do. So how do you balance that? And how do you counterbalance the feeling? I've been trying to get my kid into Irish step dancing. And I like the sensation of connecting with past generations through cultural interactions. But how do you keep it from just feeling like, oh, another thing on mom's to do list? Sometimes it kind of feels that way, but it also has a sense of urgency. Like if I don't do this, they will never X, Y, Z. And it doesn't necessarily mean that way. They may still do it later. But for example, speaking, when both of my kids were born and I stayed home with them for the first whatever, few months, I tried speaking with them in Russian exclusively. But once they head to an American daycare, or in my case, it was a Chinese language daycare, they stopped speaking it because they're simply, I mean, they don't have enough I mean, they're babies, right? But they don't have enough words at their disposal, or they might feel really self-conscious about standing out, especially if everybody else around them is speaking something else. I had to find approaches, you know, that worked for me and for the individual kids, because they're also different, even if they're from the same family. I know that some parents might be forcing their kids to speak like, I don't understand what you're saying, unless you say it to me in my language. I found that didn't work for me, especially since at the time I was like working super long hours and I had a really long commute. And that just left me like, I don't know, like an hour to an hour and a half before bedtime. And I just could not bring myself to keep forcing my daughter to speak it. So I kind of stepped back for a while. And then I came back to it with the language when she was ready. And she was at one point. Mm, that's a really helpful perspective. You talk in the book about how one in seven, I think you said, marriages in the United States these days are either interracial or interethnic, which I thought was a very interesting point of view. Like when I look at the immigrant parenting experience from the outside, yes, I do sort of imagine 
two parents from the Soviet Union and children, two parents from India, wherever it is. But in the case of actually very good friends of mine, I have a friend who the mom is from Spain. Dad was born in America. The kids all speak Spanish and the husband who speaks English knows a little bit of Spanish and that's it. So how does that further complicate things when you have sort of one parent who's trying to, you know, imbue this culture into the child raising and the other parent who's not necessarily like working against it. They just it's not their culture. It's really tricky. And for example, I mean, and there have been studies shown that if both people speak a certain language, I mean, it's almost likely almost most of the time the child is going to grow up speaking that language. And when I say language, it's not just like an ability to like, I don't know, do multiplication in your head. It's just such a more uh, personal, intimate connection to an entire world that's out there, right? It's a art, it's a cartoons, it's the jokes, it's the songs that people sing, like, you know, the nursery rhymes and other like cultural artifacts. And of course, it's a connection to like a wealth of memories and to the grandparents. It's a lot harder when your partner doesn't speak the language, even though maybe they promised they would learn it when you were dating, <laughs> as in my case, and not naming oh, names. the things they promised when you were dating. I remember them well. It's not just language, people. Oh, so sometimes they don't learn it. And of course, you feel really awkward speaking to the language that the partner doesn't understand or the in-laws don't understand. I mean, people still do it and have been doing it for lots of years, you know, families, but it certainly creates awkwardness. I know a lot of people don't feel comfortable having discussions, like say at the dinner table, you want to have the whole family talking about your day or talking about something funny that happened. And if you just speak in a language that like one fraction of the family doesn't understand, it's you don't want to exclude them. And of course, in social situations too, you know, there's a dynamic, say you go to on a play date and English is the language that they're using. If you speak your language all the time to your child, then the likelihood is higher than they're going to learn it. But speaking your language, it's, it's already creating that sort of kind of a barrier or almost, or you're kind of disconnecting. And again, people do it and everybody finds their way. And there's not one way to nurture bilingualism, but there's so many social situations. And I remember during the both presidential elections, whenever I spoke Russian to my kids in public, I always felt really awkward. I felt sometimes people are like looking at me like, what is she speaking? Is that Russian? Is she a spy? Mm-hmm. Not a spy. <laughs> Nothing to do with the Russian government. But of course, it has all these complicated layers. I want to take a break. And when we come back, talk a little bit more about that mistrust that people born in our country can have of people born outside of our country and what it's like to parent through that. We'll be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a (laughs) pro-aunt at this point. Our family has seen a lot of babies, and as soon as they start standing or walking... I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. 
can too. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. We're back. We're talking to Masha Rumer, author of Parenting with an Accent. So, I want to pivot a little bit because your book is at once very much about your unique experience. And, you know, if you meet one immigrant parent raising kids in the United States, you've met one. There's something that's very individual about each person's experience, but there's also a commonality. And you talk in the book a little bit about the history of immigration and those who today might view newcomers with distrust and who might say something like, well, but my grandparents did it the right way. These people today aren't doing it the right way, but mine did it the right way. What do we get wrong about the history of immigration? Is this distrust of newcomers new? Well, that was a, such an interesting thing that I discovered. It absolutely is not new. It's been sort of the nature of the immigrant experience, you know, for centuries. In the 18th century, Benjamin Franklin was railing against the Germans immigrating to Pennsylvania. Why is Germany sending us these people? They're never going to assimilate and be like us or even he quote unquote, have our complexion or English complexion. And, you know, it continued throughout whenever there would be new people coming for, you know, political or social reasons from a certain part of the world, they would often encounter suspicion. I mean, it's, I guess in a way it makes sense. You know, you have the newcomers that look different. They speak a different language. They often have a different faith. And of course, a lot of these people are taking the jobs that oftentimes are not even part of the union. They might be willing to work, you know, at worst, working conditions and uh, for lower pay. So obviously that also angers some others, even though eventually immigrants were the ones often who were like forming these unions, for example, like the, the garment workers in New York, a lot of them were Eastern European Jews at the beginning of the 20th century. But at the same time, when we talk about, you know, my parents came here legally with papers, like papers was not even a thing until like the 1920s or so, because people used to just like get on a ship, get a ticket, give them your name, and that's it. You didn't have to have relatives. You didn't have to have a job lined up. 
Of course, there were some exclusions. Like at the end of the 19th century, prostitutes were not allowed, or <laughs> people with communicable disease were not allowed, anarchists. And of course, like one of the hugest and like a terrible restrictions is, you know, in 1882, there was this Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically said, people from China could no longer immigrate to the United States. It just like prevented them or prohibited them from coming. And those who were already living here from China were not allowed to become citizens at the time. And that's kind of the beginning of all these restrictive laws. We don't always think of it that way, but there were just no papers. And also, I think it's informed parenting by immigrant parents. I know that in my generation, People whose parents had come from other countries felt an extreme amount of pressure to assimilate, that there was this idea that otherness and being from somewhere else was a negative. There was a pressure to speak English and kind of act like American kids. For a lot of people who I know, they've spent later parts of their life really trying to reconnect with their heritage. They have regrets that they don't speak the same language as their grandparents. They feel like they lost out somewhat on an experience of connection with their relatives because there was this focus on assimilation. That is such a good point. And I think in a way, it's almost like the part of the immigrant experience. I mean, Another interesting thing that I found is that we lose, as immigrants, we lose our language by the third generation. So, like, the immigrant speaks the language, and then the kids will probably speak it, they'll be bilingual, and the grandkids will not. So, I was super shocked when I read that statistic, but when I went back, mm. I found research that showed that it was a pretty similar rate of losing a language even, say, 100 years ago. So, like, you know, with the European migration wave. So, that's really interesting. But... In my research, I spoke to over 60 people. Most of them were immigrants, and most of them were parents, although not all immigrants were parents. And also, I spoke to some experts in language development and psychology, but the majority were, were immigrants. I spoke to second-generation parents as well, who grew up here and were born here, but their parents came to the United States. It was a very common threat, just like you pointed out. Like the parents did not want to teach them their language. You know, I had a mom who was Korean American and she was raised by a single mom and she really wants her children to speak Korean. And she started sending them to this language class and they weren't kind of into it, but she really got into it. So she started learning all those words that she kind of grew up hearing. But when she was growing up, she says that often she and her sibling would often even correct the mom when she didn't say something right in English. And now she's kind of feeling embarrassed. But again, it seems like a part of a, a human immigrant experience. Or I have another interview that I conducted with a woman whose family is from the Philippines originally. She goes back often, but she does not speak Tagalog or any other languages because her parents freaked out when she started mixing those languages of the Philippines together. And they thought that she would be confused. Or she, they thought that she would have an accent like they did and she would be looked down upon. So she does not speak Tagalog and she tried to learn it with an app. But every time she goes back, she just gets so nervous. She kind of resorts back to English. My uh, son is studying Chinese in school. And it seems to me Chinese, Russian languages that don't use the alphabet that we're familiar with. It's a whole other layer of complexity. So he has lots of kids in his class who understand Chinese, but they can't write it. Can your kids read Russian as well as speak it? 
there's understanding it, then there's speaking it, then there's reading it, then there's writing it, right? There's levels of language, I suppose. Totally. Yeah. And reading it and writing it definitely makes it not easier to learn. I mean, it's a whole other thing, especially with Chinese characters. Like, it's so complicated, but it cements a language more if you can read it. My daughter actually can. I think I mentioned when she kind of stopped speaking it and she would not do it, even though I tried to bribe her with all kinds of things. Eventually she came back to it and I just jumped on the opportunity and I taught her to read. So she reads slower, which often happens with immigrants. Her reading level is slower than her, you know, in Russian than it is in English, but she still can do it. And my son is learning, but he's now taking Russian lessons. Luckily, we're able to have him do that for the first time in his life. He's six. And so he's learning to read a little bit. I found myself kind of not being like, okay, you shall write a sentence in Russian every night before bed because... It's just life and it's a pandemic. And you want them to want to do it, right? I mean, you want it to not be seen as a chore, but something that they want to do and have their relationship with their heritage, I imagine. Exactly. And I found that, and just also from t- talking to experts, like you have to make it fun. I spoke to Professor Erica Levy at Columbia University's Teachers College, and she is, and she's like, you cannot force them. You know, they're like a garden. If you water the garden and give it love, the garden will grow. And if you're just like whacking like a weed whacker, they're just not going to want to do it. The more fun and interactive it is, the more likely they are to just be interested. And again, it's not just like learning the ABCs, but a whole world that opens up as a result. Yeah. So we have a saying on this podcast, tweet, tweet. And it was something that my grandmother used to say when my childhood seemed to her to be a little too far from her Irish immigrant. She wasn't an immigrant, but her grandparents were. So she remembered that they lived on a farm. They got an orange on Christmas morning and a quarter and thought that they were the luckiest people around. Right. So she'd see the way that we were being raised, which was a very typical, you know, middle class lifestyle. And she'd say tweet, tweet, because she just couldn't believe that I had piano lessons and a closet full of clothes and things like that. Not that I shouldn't, just that it was like, well, this is pretty different. Do you ever find that with your kids? Like the childhood that you're giving them, that you want to give them, must be very different from your childhood in the Soviet Union, which was filled with struggle. And and what is that like? Oh, my God. Where do I start? (laughs) It's absolutely different. We didn't have Christmas. We had New Year's, which is like a secular Christmas because religion was considered opiate for the masses. So I remember there would be like a plastic bag with presents for everybody in the family. And now just like even just sitting there watching them open their presents in the morning. I mean, I'm happy, but at the same time, I'm like, gosh, darn it. Like, this is very different from where I grew up. And Mm. I know I remember I used to go to school by myself, you know, like in the dark in the morning, but before, you know, because it was cold in the winter, like come back by myself. I used to take public transit when I was like, I don't know, nine years old, eight years old, sometimes the subway to get to my music lessons alone and then go back also in the dark. Yeah, very different. And also, we didn't have such a variety of foods. Children didn't have an option of like, you know, I just don't feel like having, I don't know, these vegetables, I'm going to have something else. Or, oh, you didn't like cut my sandwich in the right shapes. You cut that into squares. (laughs) I wanted triangles. Or like, why did you cut it in the first place? We didn't have that because like you were really limited in what you could do. I remember being sent, I remember food scarcity got so bad, like at the end of the 80s, early 90s, that we would be given like, coupons like you can also you could only go with that coupon and get a certain amount like a certain number of pounds of say flour or sugar and i remember going there and like standing in line for a very long time after school and sometimes it would just run out and i had nothing to bring or i remember i would go like to get sour cream like we'd bring our own jars which is nice sustainability right I'd, i got a jar to be filled with sour cream that was usually diluted <laughs> and they filled it with the sour cream and they came back and accidentally dropped it 
I buy my apartment building on the stairs and it just like poured out everywhere. And I was so heartbroken. I was like, my parents are going to be so pissed because that was our food supply of sour cream for a week. So very different. And of course, no allowance, like tooth fairy. My husband and I still argue about how much to give them. I don't know. How much are we supposed to give kids? (laughs) (laughs) I know people give their kids 20 bucks and I'm like, it's a dollar. But, you know, people have different. I used to give gold coins, like Sacagawea, like dollar coins. That sounds right to me. Oh, I love that. I'd kind of recycle them too. I'd had a couple of those around. They looked fancy. But this idea of who we were versus and wanting our kids to understand that, I think there's so much to unpack there. And we're going to talk more about that after this break. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L U M E N dot M E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Hello, Hellions. You know we listen to a lot of podcasts that aren't our own. And today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating and so helpful. I feel better equipped to advocate for my child's educational needs now. This podcast is helpful for parents in many different situations, whether your child already has an IEP or you're just starting to wonder if they might need extra support in the classroom. Juliana has content for kids of all ages and for kids who are learning English as an additional language as well. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. We're back. So much of this conversation, starting with this idea of like, you can't sit on two chairs with one butt, but that is the immigrant experience. You kind of have to figure out how to bridge these two worlds. I saw it in my grandmother who came from a depression era mentality who would be just appalled by the idea that we would accidentally pour orange juice in the cereal and we would throw away and make another bowl. And we would say like, what are we supposed to do? Eat orange juice in cereal? And that's exactly what she thought we should do. And my husband's grandfather would talk to us and he would always say, I hope you didn't get credit to pay for that house. We totally did. We took out a mortgage. But for him, <laughs> the idea of taking money to buy a house was very appalling. He never owned anything in his entire life. He did not pay for with cash, his cars, everything. You know, honestly, we would kind of roll our eyes like, oh, that grandpa in his old ways. But none of his advice was wrong or bad. It's just, you know, 
our time, the idea of buying a house with cash is just something that maybe super rich people could do, but we could never do. And so it does seem like you're constantly having to balance this idea of like, listen, you just threw away that drink because you didn't like the way it tasted. And I almost drove our family fortunes off the rails by dropping this jar of sour cream. I truly got like (gasps) gasp when you told that story. Yeah. And how important is it to balance those things? I think it is important for your kids to understand that, but you don't necessarily just want to become the voice of like, do you understand what it was like for me? Following them around the house. Yeah. Like, do you know yet? Yeah, let me tell you how I walked uphill in the snow. Although I do say that a lot. <laughs> you really did. Yeah. You probably actually did walk uphill in the snow. Yeah. I say that a lot. I mean, I don't say that a lot to them, but of course I think about it a lot. I think at some point I just learned to kind of tune out things that I didn't agree with. I mean, and also parenting, right? You should not pick up your child because they will be spoiled. I remember, you know, in my grandparents' generation, people were not supposed to praise their kids because the thought was that they would grow up to be conceited and selfish. We also had that. (laughs) Oh, I think, yeah. And I remember meeting my husband's late grandmother, whose heritage was Polish. And she saw me like always, you know, like cuddling my baby. She was like, oh, they're going to become bad. You're going to spoil them. You're going to spoil them rotten. But of course, at some point I was like, you know, yeah, I'm going to spoil them. I'm going to tell them that I love them all the time and hug them. And I think it's okay because that's just how I feel. I want them to grow up. So at some point, I feel like we just figure out what we want to do and how we want to proceed with our parenting. There are some things that, you know, I still bring in. For example, you're not supposed to, in the Russian culture, look at a newborn or let somebody who is not from the family to look at the newborn to avoid the evil eye, so to speak. So that's super interesting. And I remember a friend of mine had a baby and she did not post any pictures on Facebook. And I was like, oh my God, I hope she's okay. I hope everything went fine. And then I was like, oh, she's Russian. So I think maybe she's just not going to post the pictures until the baby is like a few months old. And that is true. Obviously she didn't. She was fine. I talked to a family where if there was, for example, an eclipse, you're supposed to, based on the old Aztec tradition that some people in Mexico subscribe to, you're supposed to have some red fabric and a paper clip next to you if you're pregnant. My parents did not really believe in sunscreen because I think they just didn't grow up with it for babies. So we used to have discussions about how even though my child is a baby and little, she still needs sunscreen if she's out. I think it's a generational thing, really. You talk in the book about sort of the mistrust from the the larger family, the in-laws that can come from both sides. I'm thinking about my in-laws when they got married. I mean, they've been married 50 years now. Irish and Italian have both already lived in Pennsylvania for a couple of generations. But the grandmothers on both sides, the Italian grandmother wasn't so sure about the Irish kid and vice versa, even though they lived like 10 blocks away. But there is this mistrust. And sometimes, I mean, I can think about the sort of interethnic things that can happen. Like, I don't really understand why we need to do the second baptism at the Orthodox Church, but it's really, really important to my mother-in-law. So I'm just going to take this one for the team. Is that something that immigrant parents have to sort of negotiate more often? Absolutely. Exactly. What I mean, it just comes down to, you know, celebrating what holidays do you celebrate? And it doesn't even have to be immigrants. It's like you said, it could be just a cultural or religious heritage that they bring from the generations that, you know, that have been living here for years in the United States. So it's negotiating between the two and just finding something that works. And there is a lot of that mistrust also, of course, like, why do Americans have jam for dinner for Thanksgiving? Like cranberry sauce. (laughs) Or like, why do they buy grated cheese if you can grate it yourself? But at the same time, there is mistrust, you know, of many immigrant communities of the native born American population. I mean, it's different. And especially when it comes to marriage and uh, finding a partner, a lot of people want their 
child to marry somebody who is from the same background to preserve that cultural heritage. And also because they're just familiar with it. So there's always this tension going on on both sides, kind of some mistrust and like a desire to, to kind of understand, but at the same time to hold on to your old ways. And that's the sort of takeaway of the book, I think. There's a struggle along the way for the immigrant parent to make it feel like home, right? To make the next holiday, to make the special dinner, to make everything, make it feel like back home. And you can't exactly make it feel like back home. So what do you learn along the way? How do you make that work? Well, I think what I found is people... I mean, it just goes back to that picking and choosing. We figure out what we want to keep and what we don't want to keep. And it's never like a spreadsheet, right? Where we figure out, well, these are the things that are favorable to me or that will yield the most benefit later. It just kind of happens intuitively. And I found that a lot of times, I think it just comes down to how we feel about ourselves. One of the greatest takeaways from the researching this book was that there is so much unexamined, I guess, trauma and notions that we carry about ourselves, about how we should be, about how we feel about our own immigration, the trauma of leaving and or being displaced, you know, whatever our story is. And for example, I asked some pretty hard questions when I spoke to people. And a lot of times they simply would like, they would just like go blank or their partner, if the partner was there, would answer for them. Or what happened oftentimes later is that I would get a call or an email or a text saying, wow, I've been like thinking about this all week, which you asked, and it really brought up so much for me. And I remember even when I started writing the book, I started, you know, first writing the book opens with my, with the scene where I'm leaving, I'm immigrating from Russia and just researching those details. Like, did the clock really strike exactly at midnight? Did it actually strike? Or what was I wearing? So I tried to retrace all those details and I found it really hard to retrace them because I've kind of blocked them out, to be honest. And once I started like coming back to it, I was an emotional mess. At one point, I almost wanted to stop writing the book and like rescind my contract because it was just too painful. And I found that's very similar with a lot of immigrants. Or when we come, we think we should assimilate in a certain way. I should be just like an American person, even though I have all these ideas of how I should raise my child as a good part of like my culture. But a lot of times our relationship with our culture changes. We can reinvent ourselves many times, you know, depending on what stage of life we're on, for example. So sometimes people assimilate and they just reject their old culture. Sometimes they might want to hold on to their culture and like refuse to pick it up. And sometimes they might even reject both because they're so you know, they're having a really rough time. And that's also an okay way to become part of this new country. Or a lot of people I spoke to told me they don't have any recollection of their immigration altogether, the way they came, you know, through the first few months or years, because it's like this blank, they blocked it out. Or when I asked about discrimination, a lot of them did not want to tell me about it, or did they just not perceive discrimination, or even, like, try not to think about it. Because as an immigrant, you just keep going, you know, you you survive and you don't want to think about those things, but they're there. Or even when I ask people like, well, who do you socialize with? A lot of people simply could not even tell me because again, we don't make lists or like think, well, who should I socialize with? It just happens. And so a lot of these notions were unexamined. And one thing I found for me, I've had so much more compassion for myself and for my own, I guess, experience. And I feel like a lot of people that I spoke to kind of maybe became a little bit more compassionate towards themselves. Yeah, and I think that that's really universal, even for people who are listening to this who are not immigrant parents themselves. This experience of where do we come from and what do we want to impart to our kids 
applies for most people. I think they have the experience that there are things from their childhood that they value and they want to impart and bring forward. And there are things from their childhood that they want to leave behind and move past. And the kinds of decision makings and the discussions in this book, I think, are useful to all parents because that idea, everyone's trying to sit on two chairs with one butt because that's the experience of having a child who's outside yourself. You want them to take only the good stuff and leave with, you know, all the value you can impart, but not take any of the bad stuff. None of us are doing it perfectly, but this book kind of captures it in a very specific lens, but it's useful to everyone, I think. One of your recent episodes was about flecks of gold and finding things to like yes. appreciate. That really resonated with me too, because again, it's not just about cultural heritage, but feeling that what I do is enough and finding ways, you know, when you're feeling so stressed and overwhelmed to celebrate those little things and understand what actually is in fact important. We've been talking to Masha Rumer. Her book is Parenting with an Accent, How Immigrants Honor Their Heritage, Navigate Setbacks, and Chart New Paths for Their Children. Masha, tell us where we can find you and and the book. Well, the book is uh, pretty much everywhere. And also it's available on audio. And also it's available in an electronic copy, like in Kindle or Nuke. And my website is just my name, MashaRumer.com, which is M-A-S-H-A-R-U-M-E-R.com. And my Twitter handle is MashaDC. And then my Instagram is just my first name and last name. Great. And we will link to all of those places where you can find Masha and find the book in the show notes for this episode. Masha, thanks so much for talking to us today. This is a great conversation. Thank you, Margaret and Amy. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Masha. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, You'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, 
you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 